Well, when we think about life, I think we tend to think about our individual lives, of course, and maybe even those uh, lives of our family members and those friends in our immediate circles of influence. <clears throat> but I'm not sure how common it is when we think about life to think about how our lives are actually connected to and affecting the lives of people whom we haven't even met yet. Maybe even people we never will meet, at least this side of heaven, other people all over the earth. And yet our lives are affecting the lives of other people far from our immediate circles of influence. You know that. People all around the world, people we may never meet or know anything about, because God's plan for each one of our individual lives is a part of a much bigger plan, which happens to be connected to the lives of the rest of his people all over the world. Every single follower of Jesus Christ is a part of his body, his church, which is worldwide, of course, which means the story that is your life is a part of a much larger story. And not just as a footnote, by the way, or an add-on to that larger story, but you must understand that your life is actually a vital and necessary part of that larger story. And so it is exceedingly important that we not only understand and accept that fact, but that we live our lives with a great sense of conviction that every part of our lives, our choices, our decisions, our approach to and handling of circumstances, our attitudes toward and treatment of other people, all of it has a ripple effect that reverberates throughout the rest of the body of Christ, the, the worldwide body of believers, both now and far into the future, as we'll see, because that, that big story is made up of the sum of all of our individual stories so that our part the part that each of us plays in God's grand plan is just as important as every other part. The Apostle Paul said, for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 16. So clearly, every follower of Jesus Christ is connected to every other follower of Jesus Christ, right? We're all a part of the same body, which means what each part of the body does affects the other parts of the body. Paul continues in verses 21 and 22, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. So not only can we not claim that some play an important role in God's kingdom while others do not, because Paul makes it clear that all the parts play a vital role, but we also cannot function independently from the rest of the body, believing that what we do or do not do has no effect on the other parts. Because in truth, what each of us does or does not do with our lives has great effect on the rest of the body, and not just the parts that we happen to be the closest to. 
All right? And so when God is working in our lives, which, which he's always doing, by the way, he's not simply doing that work in order to bring about results solely for our individual benefit, results that only affect our lives or those closest to us. No, his work in our lives brings about results that are intended to also affect the rest of the body. And it is really important that we get this because what is happening in your life right now is bigger than just your life or even those who are closest to you because your story is a part of a much bigger story. And if, if, if you can get to a place where you truly believe that and accept that and spend some time really meditating on that, it will change the way you view your own life. Because first of all, you'll realize that what's happening to you is not just about you. And secondly, you'll begin to seek your purpose in the bigger story instead of only thinking about yourself and your personal story. And I'll just tell you, that changes everything. Okay, so it's not only, it's not that your life isn't important, quite the opposite. In fact, your life is far more important than you could ever realize when you're only focused on yourself. And so everyone wants to know, what is God's plan for their life? But you cannot ever fully grasp what God's plan for your life is outside of his plan for the rest of this world. And so instead of always asking, what is God's plan for my life? We should first be asking, what is God's plan for this world? And then once we understand what his plan for this world is, the next question should be, now how does my life fit in to that plan? Because that's actually how you discover your purpose in this life. It's a difference between focusing on God and what he's doing and just focusing on yourself. And consequently, when you, when you do begin to consider your life in light of all of the other lives that you're connected to, a lot of things that may not make sense to you in the moment can begin to make a lot of sense. Because what God is doing in your life is bringing about results in a lot of other people's lives at the same time it's affecting yours. So as we continue our sermon series looking at the life and times of Joseph, we're going to talk about God's plan for your life today and how that fits into the bigger picture of who God is and what he's up to in this world and how that affects what he's up to in your life. So we're going to pick up the story where we left off last week at Genesis chapter 43 as Joseph's brothers who've gone to Egypt to buy food during a severe famine have encountered Joseph in his new position there as the vizier that's the second in command of all of Egypt and yet the brothers don't realize that it's Joseph. They sold him into slavery a long time ago, and as far as they know, he's still a slave somewhere in that country or dead for all they know. But Joseph recognizes his brothers, and so he gives them strict instructions not to return to Egypt for more food unless they bring their younger brother Benjamin back with them because, first of all, he wants to see his brother, and secondly, he wants to find out whether or not the older brothers have learned to tell the truth about anything at this point after all these years. And so for leverage, Joseph keeps Simeon, one of the brothers, in prison in Egypt with a promise to release him if they return with Benjamin. So we'll pick up the story now as Jacob and his sons recognize that they must go back to Egypt for more food. 
Uh, and so they're having it out here in the beginning of this chapter over the issue of whether or not they're going to take Benjamin with them. So we'll begin with the first 10 verses. Chapter 43. Now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, the man solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, that's Jacob, why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? In other words, did you really have to open your mouth and tell him that? They replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, send a boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. So there's been no let up, no reprieve from the famine, just as Joseph predicted in his interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams. And Jacob and his sons and their families have now eaten all the food they purchased on their earlier trip to Egypt. And so Jacob says to his sons, hey, go, go back again and buy us a little food. Very conspicuously, he's leaving out any mention of the earlier conversation they had about Benjamin and the fact that the brothers have been given this strict warning by Joseph that if they return to Egypt and they want to do that and not die, they're going to have to bring him back with them. And so Judah steps up and becomes the spokesman for the other brothers, showing a maturity that he has really lacked for most of his life. And he reminds his father of the conversation with this ruler of Egypt, who is, of course, Joseph, but they don't know that yet. He says, the man, referring to Joseph, solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we'll go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And so Jacob responds by complaining. He complains. He says, look, you gave too much information about our family here to Joseph when you were being interrogated by him. And so then all the brothers jump in with Judah to protest their father's complaints about how they handled the situation. They said, hey, look, Dad, we were just answering his questions. How are we supposed to know he would require us to bring Benjamin back with us? But Jacob isn't budging. So Judah says, send the boy with me. And we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. In other words, if we don't go back to Egypt with Benjamin, then we're all going to die anyway because we will all, every one of us, starve to death right here in Canaan. Three generations, Dad, we and you and also our little ones. And by the way, that includes Benjamin. So you're not sparing his life by keeping him here. You're actually sentencing him and yourself and the rest of us to certain death. 
And although that statement in and of itself would have been a very compelling argument for Judah making his case, he doesn't stop there. He once again steps up and makes the ultimate offer, which again demonstrates the growth and maturity that has happened in his own life. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. John 15, 13, that's exactly what Judah is doing here when he says, I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, let me bear the blame forever. Okay? When Judah says, I will be a pledge of his safety, in the Hebrew that is literally translated as, I myself will become surety for him. And in ancient Hebrew culture, you could offer to stand surety for someone else, which was an incredibly risky thing to do. And it was never intended to be taken lightly or entered into lightly because it meant that Jacob could rightfully demand Judah's own life if he came back without Benjamin, which is very significant for Jacob. If you were here last week, you'll remember because in effect, Judah is breaking the pattern of the brothers leaving and coming back home without one of them, but with extra cash on hand, which they did with Joseph, and then they did again with Simeon, and which, of course, Jacob now fears they're going to do with Benjamin. But by offering his own life as surety for Benjamin, Judah removes the likelihood of that happening because it would mean forfeiting his own life. And just to put an exclamation point on that statement, Judah then adds, from my hand, you shall require him. That was an ancient Hebrew idiom, a, a saying that the Old Testament prophets used to describe their own culpability, their own personal responsibility for the blood of the wicked if they refused to deliver God's warnings as he instructed them to do. So this is serious business, and Judah lays it all out here to try and convince his father, who's resisting with everything inside of himself, to do the right thing, even though it's the hard thing to do which also demonstrates the fact that Jacob was focused on his own doubts instead of God's plan. But honestly, who can blame him? He has every good reason not to trust Judah and his brothers. They have proven themselves untrustworthy, spiteful, and unreliable over and over again. Jacob has some serious doubts here, and he's focusing on those doubts instead of God's plan. And yet, I dare say that we've all been there haven't we? We all have doubts from time to time, and often for good reasons. There are times when people and circumstances give us plenty of justification for doubting them, and it can be very easy to focus on those doubts instead of God's plan for those people and those circumstances. But if our true purpose concerning those people and those circumstances is to be fulfilled, then we have to focus on God's plan instead of our own doubts no matter how justified our doubts may be, okay? God's example for our marriages is for us to stay married. Like 1 Corinthians 7, 10, and 11, the Apostle Paul writes, to the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. God's plan for our marriages is for us to stay married, clearly. And yet, because we're human beings and far from perfect, we can at times give each other plenty of reasons to doubt one another. I'm sure my wife has spent many days wondering, what have I done, right? And so when a, spouse, when a spouse's behavior 
creates a world of doubt in that marriage, we have a choice. We can focus on those doubts, justified as they may be. Or we can focus on God's plan for that marriage, which is for us to stay married. And of course, we know that not all marriages work out because we can't control all of our circumstances or all that other people involved do in those circumstances. But listen, even though we cannot always control our circumstances or other people, we are always in control of how we respond to those circumstances and those other people. We can focus on our doubts or we can focus on God's plan. That doesn't guarantee a favorable response by the other person or the favorable outcome that we may be hoping for in those circumstances. But it does guarantee that we will discover and fulfill God's plan and purpose for our lives when we're focused on his plan, even when other people are not. Why? Because God doesn't throw us aside, even when other people do. So God's perfect design well, that may not always be what we experience every time through this life because we cannot control every circumstance and every other person that we're in relationship with. Obviously, uh, obviously bad things happen to good, God-fearing, faithful, and faith-filled people. And if you don't believe that, you've never actually read the Bible. But look, even though bad things happen from time to time, that in no way negates your opportunity or ability to fulfill his plans and purposes for your life because he can overcome any obstacle in our lives no matter what other people or other situations do to us. But for our part, we must remain faithful to him, and that means focusing on his plan instead of our doubts when things don't go our way. Okay, and fortunately for the entire family, Jacob is beginning to realize that, albeit reluctantly. So let's keep reading, verses 11 through 15. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise and, and again, go again to the man. And may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. May he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. And so the men took this present. They took the, double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. And so after an extremely tense disagreement over whether or not to return to Egypt with Benjamin, Jacob finally concedes and gives the brothers permission to do so. And in the process, he instructs them to take uh, gifts back to Egypt with them to be presented to the man, of course referring to Joseph. And he says, take double the money with you, carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks, which, by the way, meant 20 pieces of silver, 20 shekels of silver, which, interestingly enough, was the exact amount that the brothers sold Joseph for 20 years earlier. Back in chapter 37, verse 28, says that Joseph's brothers were sold, uh, to, the, was sold to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, which is the Hebrew word kesef. 
And in verses 12 and 15 here, when Jacob tells them twice to take double the money back to the Lord of Egypt in both places, it's the same Hebrew word, kasef. And because there are 10 brothers going down to Egypt, each taking double the money needed to buy more grain, it's 20 shekels of silver, the exact amount that they made by selling Joseph into slavery. Now, tell me God doesn't have a plan for our lives. The brothers are about to give to Joseph every single bit of money that they made by kidnapping him and selling him 20 years ago. God had all this figured out long before any of it happened. And Jacob is beginning to understand that because in verse 14 he says, May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And as for me, if I'm bereaved of my children, I'm bereaved. In other words, Jacob is acknowledging the fact that ultimately the outcome of this situation is in God's hands alone. And so the brothers head back to Egypt with their little brother Benjamin. Let's keep reading verses 16 through 25. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, oh, my Lord. We came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we've brought it again with us and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put the money in our sacks. And he replied, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they washed their feet, and when he had given them don their donkey's fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they had heard that they should eat bread there. So when the brothers make it back to Egypt, they're brought up to Joseph's house and already on edge to begin with, this sends them over the edge. <laughs> they're freaking out and it's understandable because first of all, the last time they saw Joseph, he treated them roughly and imprisoned them for three days and then kept Simeon in prison until their return. And yet now they're being invited over to his house for a feast at lunchtime. They're convinced, according to verse 18, that Joseph's true motive is to attack them, to overpower them, and to take them into slavery, which is quite interesting because that is exactly what they did to Joseph 20 years earlier. Obviously, their guilt is fresh on their minds, and if that alone wasn't unnerving enough to be invited to dine at an Egyptian official's personal residence, particularly someone the stature of Joseph, that would have been an exceptional privilege, very rare for even an Egyptian citizen, but for a group of foreigners, it would be unheard of, all right? And although these brothers may be guilty of many things, stupidity is not one of them. 
They understand how unlikely and how unusual this whole scenario is, and, and they're coming unglued, quite frankly, because of it. So they decide to try and be proactive by going up to the house and speaking with the steward to hopefully prove their innocence before Joseph gets home and throws them all back into prison. So they give their own personal account of all that has happened to them. And so the steward of the house attempts to allay their fears by telling them that all is well and that this is actually just a part of God's plan, their God's plan for their lives. And to further prove it, he brings Simeon out to be reunited with them as promised. However, they couldn't yet quite accept any of this blessing in their lives. Why? Because the brothers were focused on their own fears instead of God's plan. They thought God's plan was to avenge Joseph's blood for what they did to him 20 years earlier. Reuben says as much back in chapter 42, verse 22. They thought God's plan was to bring judgment down on their heads. They talk about it in verse 28 of the same chapter. They thought God's plan was to use this Lord over Egypt to attack them and to overpower them and to enslave them. Right? The brothers thought they knew what God's plan was, and it wasn't going to be good for them. But in truth, none of that was God's plan for these brothers. In fact, it was quite the opposite. God's plan for these brothers, as we'll see in the coming chapters, was forgiveness, grace, healing, restoration, and blessing beyond their wildest dreams the very opposite of what they expected because they were focused on their fears instead of what God had actually planned for them. And how easy it is to do just that, isn't it? When the pressures of life are bearing down on us and fear of the unknown begins to creep in, what's going to happen next? How is this all going to play out? What good can possibly come of this situation? We, we begin to worry, and it's so easy to think the worst. And the next thing you know, you're focused on your fears instead of the promises of God and His good plan for our lives. But you know what? Focusing on our fears never gets us anywhere. Fear has never been responsible for the fulfillment of His plan in anyone's life because His plan is not for us to live in fear. So what do we do when we're plagued by fear? Well, the psalmist writes, out of my distress, I called on the Lord. And the Lord answered me and set me free. From what? From my fear, my distress. And then he says in verse 6, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Psalm 118, 5 and 6. For those of us whom he calls his own, we have nothing to fear because our God is for us. He is not against us, which means God's plan for our lives is not something that we run from in fear. It is something we rise to in faith. Do you get that? God's plan for our lives is not something we run from in fear. It's something we rise to in faith because he's on our side. What can man do to us? When we belong to Christ, we have nothing to fear. But the brothers who were a big part of God's plan, they didn't get this. 
They thought God's plan was to crush them for what they'd done to their brother. But they were about to learn, particularly in chapter 45, that God had other plans for them altogether. For now, let's finish the story for today. Verse 26 to the end of the chapter. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is this, uh, is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father is well. He is still alive. They bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son. And he said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out. Controlling himself, he said, serve the food. They served him by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. They sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs, and they drank and were merry with him. This is a fascinating part of the story because of everything that's going on here, okay? First of all, Joseph is increasingly becoming conflicted about his plan of deception and testing toward his brothers, which so far is going famously. And yet his compassion for them, as we saw in the last chapter, and for Benjamin, which we see here, is growing and beginning to soften his heart toward them. But there's still this tremendous inner struggle going on to the point that Joseph has now repeatedly had to run away from the brothers to weep before he can return and continue this charade. And so this uh, uh, conflict going on inside of Joseph is raging. On the one hand, he is beginning to yearn to want to let down his guard and show his love for these brothers. But on the other hand, he has had 20 long years to think about all that they've done to him. And now, after 20 long years, he can finally do something about it. And so he devises a masterful plan that involves deceit and tricks and rough treatment of his brothers so that Joseph can learn what he wants to know about his younger brother and particularly his father without the other brothers knowing who he is. But Joseph's foolproof plan is beginning to crack because Joseph was focused on his own plan instead of God's plan. Okay, God's plan tells him to have compassion. Joseph's plan says no mercy. God's plan says forgive. Joseph's plan says payback. God's plan says love. Joseph's plan says no, hold on to your hate. God's plan says, tell the truth. Joseph's plan says, deceive. And so as conflicted as ever, right after weeping over the warmth he's beginning to feel toward them, and especially Benjamin, he has them seated in perfect birth order. Now remember, they don't know that it's Joseph. In their minds, there's no way that this Lord of Egypt could possibly know the perfect birth order of those 11 brothers. And yet he seats them perfectly in order according to birth. That's why verse 33 says, and the men looked at one another in amazement. 
Okay, and I don't know if it's true. I read somewhere this week that statistically the odds of seating 11 brothers in their exact birth order are something like one in 40 million. Whatever the odds actually are, the brothers are amazed and understandably so. And then as the food is set before them, Benjamin, the youngest, is given five times more than the rest of the brothers because Joseph wanted to see how they would react to the youngest brother receiving preferential treatment. Right, why? Because the last time their youngest brother, Joseph himself, received preferential treatment, they hated him for it. So you can see the conflict raging inside of Joseph. On the one hand, he's having to run away to weep for his brothers, and yet at the same time, he continues to deceive them and test them. But why is this such a struggle? It's because Joseph fell in love with his own plan, and now he's having trouble letting go of that plan in favor of God's plan. And I can't tell you how many times in my own life I have fallen in love with my own plan and tried to convince God that it was not only a really good plan, but it was in fact the best plan for all involved. But I'll tell you, when we do that, when we focus on our own plan instead of God's plan, we inevitably end up exactly where Joseph has ended up in a serious state of conflict within ourselves and with those who we are in relationship with because as good as our plan may seem to us, it will never measure up to or get us where we need to be like God's plan. And yet as utterly deficient, second rate as our plans are compared to God's plan. How many of you know letting go of our plans for this life in deference to his can often be one of the very hardest things for us to do. But that is exactly what we must do if we've any hope of realizing our true purpose in this life. I mentioned earlier that instead of asking the question, what is God's plan for my life? We should be asking the question, what is God's plan for this world? And then once we can answer that question, we should then ask, how does that, uh, my life, fit into God's plan for this world? Because that's how we discover our true purpose, is focusing on God's plan, right? Because we're all connected, which means his plan for you isn't just about you. It fits into his plan for the rest of the world. And so we have to pay attention to what that is at all times, instead of just focusing on ourselves and our own little world, and our immediate circle of family and friends, which is what we tend to do. And I got to tell you, I don't think there's any better example of this in all of Scripture than this chapter in the story of Jacob and Joseph and his brothers. And the key to all of it, the key to this entire story of Joseph and his family's life, the whole point of this entire story that we grew up in church listening to and learning about, it's all found right here in verse 32, a verse that is probably overlooked more often than not and maybe, uh, maybe as something interesting but largely insignificant, just a footnote to the story. And yet again, it is actually the first glimpse into the entire reason this story exists. And it proves the point that his plan for us is merely one part of a much larger plan. Verse 32 says, they served him by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves. 
because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. So Joseph eats apart from his brothers because he's still pretending to be an Egyptian in front of them. And the Egyptians could not socially mix or even eat with foreigners. And yet Joseph's own staff could not eat with him because he was not a true Egyptian and they knew it. Even though Pharaoh overruled this in the case of Joseph's wife, he could still never be fully integrated as a true Egyptian in Egyptian society. And so there were three separate parties eating at this banquet. Joseph by himself, his staff by themselves, and his brothers by themselves. And in ancient Egypt at the time, that was the most racist society on the face of the planet. The Egyptians believed they were descended from the gods and everyone else came from lesser origins. In fact, they were so serious about this, they would engrave images of foreigners onto their footstools at their homes just to emphasize their superiority over all the other races of the earth by literally trampling on them. The 5th century B.C. historian Herodotus wrote that the Egyptians so abhorred things foreign that priests at least ate and drank nothing that was imported, nor would they use the utensils for eating that had been used by the Greeks. And along with Herodotus, there are other ancient historians, Strabo, uh, Diodorus, uh, who attested to the fact that the Egyptians went to extraordinary lengths to remain separate from foreigners. Now, here's why all of this is profoundly significant to this story. God called his people to be set apart in the world, but not of the world. And yet in Canaan, they were unable to remain set apart. Consider the rape of Dinah in chapter uh, 34 of Genesis. Judah's marriage to a Canaanite in chapter 38. The sexual sins of Judah's sons in chapter 38. The sins of Judah with Tamar also in chapter 38. Clearly, had God's chosen people remained in Canaan over time, they would have wholly assimilated into the godless and corrupt culture and people of that country. But if God's people were somehow transplanted into Egypt for an extended period of time, they would truly become a people of their own, totally set apart because regardless of their willingness or unwillingness to remain so, in Egypt, they would have no choice because the Egyptians would never mix with these Hebrews. And herein lies the awesome wisdom of God. His plan for his people. And none of them could see it at the time. God will bring the entire family of Jacob into Egypt where they will be given permission in chapters 46 and 47 to establish a completely separate domain in Goshen where they will be isolated from the surrounding people for some 400 years during which time they will multiply into the millions and become a people set apart for God before he leads them back to the promised land. This is the story of Joseph. This is actually what it's all about. It's God sending Joseph to Egypt ahead of his family to make all of the necessary arrangements so that the rest of the family could go there and grow into a nation set apart for God. Now, do you think Joseph had any idea of that at the time? 
No way. What about his brothers? Of course not. They all had their own plans, but they didn't know God's plan until far later. And the whole point is, this was Joseph's purpose. This was the brother's purpose. It's the entire purpose of the entire story, God's plan for his people, not just Joseph and his brothers. That is the purpose. So if we ask the question, God, what was your plan for Joseph's life? We can focus on just Joseph and what he was doing and very easily say, well, God's plan for Joseph was to become second in command of all of Egypt so that he could save people from starving to death and live a really blessed life in the process. And of course, all of that actually did happen by God's own sovereign doing. But rather than looking at it as God's plan for Joseph's life, we would serve the story better by saying all of that is how Joseph's life fit into God's plan for his people. Can you see the difference? What happens to Joseph is the same either way you look at it, but our perspective on what God was doing in Joseph's life is very different, vastly different when we look at Joseph in the context of God's larger plan for his people rather than just looking at Joseph's individual life and how it affects his immediate circle of family and friends. This is exactly what we're talking about today. It's the same with us today. God has a plan for his people. He has a plan for this world. And your life fits into that plan. In fact, you have a vital role to play in that plan, which means if you want to truly understand God's plan for your life, you have to view it in the context of his plan for this good earth because your story is a part of a much bigger story. But you will never fully grasp what God's plan is for your life outside of his plan for the rest of this world. So listen, here's the point. Don't reduce your impact in this world. Don't reduce your role in God's plan for his people. Don't reduce your significance in this life by focusing on just some individual plan for your life and maybe those in your immediate circle. Don't spend your life doing that and reduce what he created you for because not only will you completely miss the big picture, but that kind of spiritual tunnel vision will eventually lead you to focus more on your own doubts and your own fears and your own plans while losing sight of God's plan. So instead of asking... God, what is your plan for my life? Let's start asking, God, what is your plan for this world? And then, God, how do I fit in to that plan? Because at the end of the day, that is God's plan for your life. Let's pray.